From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Mounting frustration with the unemployment system, legit applicants denied benefits as the state cracks down on fraud. And I was like, can I come see a human with my social security card and my ID and my passport to say, hey, this is who I am. And she's like, no, but you can see if you can make an appointment online. You can't get anything. Then a critical moment for the state GOP as the party tries to unify. Plus, while wildfires raged in Colorado, there was an all-out equine rescue effort. We'd been passing horse trailers, heading away from the fire all day, and it was one of those real moments where you share eye contact on the road, you give the wave. They were like, yep, I know you're going to help, like, good on you. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Highlands Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Being laid off during the pandemic was just the first hurdle for Rebecca Giraffa of Golden. Then came the fight for unemployment benefits and the task of reclaiming her stolen identity. Ironically, her quest got even more difficult as the state has tried to crack down on unemployment fraud, which is pervasive. And Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Also with us, CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny, who's been looking into not only Rebecca's saga, but this larger issue of fraud. And hi, Andy. Hello. Rebecca, tell us about the piece of mail you received. I think it was at the end of December. Correct. Yeah. So at the end of December, I, well, first was uh, let go because of COVID uh, related issues. My position was affected or laid off effective the 31st of December. And shortly thereafter, I received a piece of mail with a PIN number from the unemployment system. And it's not one I requested. Mm. But you thought maybe the process is actually working ahead of me. Maybe this is so efficient that I already have a PIN. Yeah, so, so I tried to log in to the unemployment system, and it was the old system. I received a notice that I already had an account set up and that I had already received funds, and so I was very confused about this. I actually reached out to my past controller and asked him if he had signed me up for unemployment for some reason, and he was like, no, we don't do that. <laughs> so I, thus I submitted a fraud report because I was wondering what was going on. And then shortly thereafter, I also received the U.S. Bank for Liar card, which is one of the distribution systems for funds, which did not have any money on it uh, because they didn't use the fraudsters didn't use that to gain access to the system. They used their own bank account. So they were collecting money under your name. Do I have that right? That is correct. Yes, that's correct. And so as a result, when I have called into unemployment system, I am not able to get a, get through to somebody in a sense. I can tell them my case, but because somebody put in a false email address and false phone number under my name, they 
aren't able to do anything for me except for file a fraud report, uh, or they tell me to. I've reached out and filed a police report. I put a security freeze on all of my credit. I made sure that there's a fraud report on my credit as well, just because that's the only access I have with the police report as well. Uh, one of the ladies from unemployment let me know that the police could actually reach out to them on my behalf. When I filed my report, the police said, no, we don't do that. Mm. Uh, we have too many cases going on right now. Uh, so as a result, I've actually reached out to my representatives here in Golden, and they have been able to help. They were able to push the issue through to unemployment on my behalf. The, re the response that I actually received yesterday was, they know that you have this case, but you have to wait for anything else to happen. I mean, this is like herding cats. Just the number of parties that you've had to get involved in what is already a stressful process of applying for unemployment benefits. And so how are you financially? Are you getting any sort of benefit? I'm not receiving anything at this time. I actually received a letter that I owe the unemployment system back pay because of the money that was taken out of my name. I uh, but I did have warning that I was going to be laid off. And so mm -hmm. I was able to put some money aside, which I'm very thankful for. My husband is still working. He actually received a fraudulent PIN and uh, rely a card as well. So both of us uh, have had to file the fraud system, but at the same time, he's not the one who needs the unemployment uh, in his name. And so he hasn't had that aspect of things, but I do have, a familial uh, safety net. So I'm, I'm fortunate. I, I know that there's so many other people out there that don't have that in place. Just to be clear, is it possible that the scammer is still drawing benefits or no, that's, they put the kibosh on? No, I actually was able on the computer system to go through what they, in their old system, I, you could call in and change your PIN number. And so I found the phone number to do that. I was able to change the PIN number and so I, I stopped. I filed the fraud report a number of times, actually, with the unemployment system. I finally got a hold. I believe it was the third person I talked to at unemployment told me that, yes, we have made sure that there is a fraud case put against your, your name. And so I believe that it's stopped drawing any money or somebody has stopped drawing money on my account. I hope so, yeah. uh, because it's really a shame that it defrauds the system like this, too. Rebecca, can you like estimate how much time you've spent on this? Oh, I've definitely spent over 30 hours on this, uh, whether it's been on hold, trying to get a hold of unemployment, working through their systems, uh, filing the police report, reaching out to the representatives. Uh, I was also told to reach out to the workforce center here locally in Jefferson County and when I, or just to, as somebody to possibly identify me. And when I did reach out to them, they're like, we don't have any access to the unemployment system. So while we can help you try and find a job, which is very helpful, I appreciate that, uh, we can't do anything with your unemployment case. And so I've definitely put in a lot of hours into this. Uh, and it's frustrating. I mean, it's time that's taken away from trying to locate another position or I. Uh, find other resources. Precisely what I was thinking. I mean, that the time mm -hmm. is of the essence to find something else to support your family and that that time is now being spent trying to rectify this. Okay, hold on for yeah. just a moment, Rebecca. I want to bring in our own Andy Kenny. Hi, Andy. Hello. 
How common is Rebecca's story? Well, Rebecca's got a uniquely unfortunate case because, again, she both had her identity stolen at the same time that she needed to collect benefits herself. But the two sides of those stories, identity theft and then getting locked out of your account, that's happening tons and tons. It's very common. I'm hearing from just dozens of people dealing with either one side of that story or another. Yeah, say more about just how pervasive this is. Well, the identity theft side is pretty amazing. The state claims that it's rejected more than a million applications for unemployment on the basis that they're probably fraudulent. And often enough, those cases are filed under the names of real people like Rebecca. And what we're hearing from almost every state is just that these multi-state or even multinational crime rings in some cases are harvesting people's personal information from data breaches like Equifax and using it to just cash out this unemployment money that was made available through the stimulus packages. And it so happens that people applying for unemployment benefits then find out that they're among those whose identities have been stolen. I guess Mm -hmm. I'm just asking somewhat selfishly, and maybe listeners hearing this are as well, I, I haven't drawn unemployment, but it's possible that my name could have been used, my identity. That's correct. Yeah. I, I know we've actually had people here at CPR who've reported receiving those Relia cards that they didn't ask for, which is alarming when oh. it happens. What sorts of consequences do people whose identities are stolen face? Well, a lot of people are finding out that they've been affected by this because they're receiving tax forms reporting their income. So... Um, which raises all kinds of questions about how, what are you going to do with your taxes this year? And so far, the IRS has been saying they probably won't be able to correct those forms in times. And those forms, again, are, are saying basically, hey, so we saw that you received this unemployment money when actually people didn't. Wow. And so uh, folks are needing to figure out how to do their taxes despite receiving these, these false or, or rather incorrect forms. And then with somebody like Rebecca, when you learned that you had a fraudulent claim, That's really alarming because it means that your identity is out there, that it's being sold essentially on the internet, and that someone has enough information about you to apply for benefits. Just briefly, Andy, what is this state doing to stop this? So this is the other half of it. Colorado and every other state are really ramping up these kind of automated defenses that try to weed out these applications. And they're doing that because there's a lot of pressure from the federal government uh, in part, and also because they're just paying out tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so essentially they are having software crawl through these applications and look for flags or signs that someone's uh, someone's been the victim of identity theft. They might look for an incorrect address or a suspicious birth date, for example, a birthday that's not quite right, uh, any number of things. And then they will automatically freeze payments to that person. But it's also true that that catches a lot of innocent people in the net. That's right. We've heard from tons and tons of people who are wrongly accused and are now waiting to get their benefits back. And now I think that includes our next guest, Andy, correct? Yeah. Yeah. um, That's right. Renee Blanc of Englewood. Hi, Renee. Hi there. You were also laid off late in the pandemic, correct? Uh, Correct. I actually had to start working in October, yes. In October. Uh, you collected benefits pretty smoothly, I understand, for the first couple of months until you were caught up in what's called a program integrity hold. Andy's going to explain that in a bit. But uh, tell us what went through your mind when you realized your benefits were frozen. 
Um, well, I was super confused, um, and it did happen the first week that we were able to file uh, in the new system. So I was on that first round of filing, um, and everything, you know, it was a little hard to go through the system. It was all new, but I got through it, and I thought, okay, it'll be fine. And then um, I checked two days later when it's normally in my account, and there was nothing. So I logged back in, and I saw this, you know, hold on the payments. And then it took me a little while to figure out where to find <laughs> what the issue was, because it's not it's not really clear. And it's a little hard to navigate the website. But all it said was program integrity. And it said uh, indefinitely ineligible. Oh, my goodness. And, and that must be scary. I, yeah, it was horrible. Um, and then from there, you know, once I found out what that was, which program integrity, it, it automatically means fraud. And I was like, what fraud? <laughs> you know, because yeah. um, I did not get, you know, no one filed in my name. There was no, you know, identity theft. Um, and then from there, it was just weeks of just struggling to get someone to help. Did you have, um, did you have much of a net, a safety net? No, no, I didn't. And in, in fact, by the Friday before um, they actually got things straightened out, I literally had taken a picture of my empty refrigerator because by then I was just, I was in tears. I was, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and I posted it on the Colorado uh, Labor Board Twitter feed. I was like, this is what you're doing to people. You know, you, this this isn't right. <laughs> I mean, it was you down. Know, we have to do better than this. People are struggling. I had to cancel, you know, medical tests that I had scheduled um, for the long-term effects I have from COVID-19. Um, so I couldn't even go to, you know, needed medical appointments because I, I had no money, nothing. It was, it was, it was really, it was bad. You know, it was to the point where I was just... I was depressed. I was like freaking out. I was panicking. It was horrible. So Andy, program integrity, just help us understand this briefly. Uh, You could call that a euphemism, but essentially it means that in Renee's case, the system, those automated defenses, for whatever reason, latched on to her information and decided something wasn't quite right. And of course, she had done nothing wrong herself. And that software decided that it it seemed suspicious enough, though, something was wrong. And so it froze the benefits going out to her. And it left Renee in the situation where now she had to find a way to prove to the state that Renee is Renee. And uh, as as you're hearing, that can be a really long and frustrating process. Right. So there was a website, Renee, that you eventually had to log on to. I think it's ID.me to prove that you were yourself. And uh, Andy, you've been speaking with other folks dealing with frustrations. Yeah, indeed. So that ID.me, that's that's actually a relatively new solution that the state's rolled out. It's a a software platform run by a private company where you can upload a selfie and some other information to verify you are who you say you are. Until now, that only came out the other week. Until now, you've had to wait for a human being to get around to helping you. And when there's thousands of people who are being accused of this, it can take quite a while. And we've also learned that, you know, ID.me comes with some of its own issues, which we can speak to as well. 
Yeah, say a few words. Well, we know that in other states, so IDME is doing a, a massive amount of business with every, uh, with like more than half the states doing this verification. We've heard from states like California that if you have a more complicated case, you can end up waiting on hold for hours or longer for their human beings to come and verify you. And then, you know, uh, I also spoke to an older gentleman named Elmo Griego, who uh, laid off construction employee, lives down in New Mexico, but needs to use Colorado's unemployment system. And, you know, he just didn't know how to access the software. Like, this is requiring a pretty high level of technical savvy. I'm getting kind of to the point where I I think I'm giving up. I spoke to him and, uh, yeah, I think he was trying to help me, you know, but the the delays, you know, first of all, you know, taking so long for them to pick up the phone. And then uh, they got to check their screen, come back. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of, I don't know, getting kind of tired of, of uh, this has become a full-time job. You know what I mean? A full-time job. We just heard that. Yeah. Right from and, you know, what you're hearing there is just that um, this has become yet another challenge to this effort to respond to massive unemployment. You've got so many people affected by fraud and you've got so many people struggling because they've been caught up in the effort to crack down on fraud. That is CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. He's continuing to track how the state handles unemployment benefits in the pandemic. Rebecca Giraffa of Golden was laid off in December, has had problems getting benefits. Renee Blanc of Englewood laid off in October and had been receiving unemployment until there was a freeze and she had to prove who she was. Colorado's Republican Party is at a crossroads. It's down to just one statewide office holder, a CU regent. And the number of Republicans in the state legislature has shrunk as well. But 2022 could provide an opportunity to make up lost ground with high-profile offices up for grabs in a year that might bring out more conservative voters. But to capitalize on all that, the party must unify and organize. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is here to talk about some of the potential barriers to that unification. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. Over the weekend, there was an event that could have larger implications for the Colorado GOP, huh? Yes, that's right. Republicans in El Paso County held an election for county chair. So even as the state has trended blue in recent elections, El Paso County has long been a a very conservative stronghold. And the main population center, Colorado Springs, is in fact the only city in the state former President Donald Trump visited while when he was president. And um, what was interesting about this county election was it shows how deep some of the divides are um, as the Republican Party tries to find its footing in the shadow of Trump nationally and in many corners of the country. OK, so El Paso County is something of a bellwether in this regard. What's been going on in El Paso County? The current El Paso County chair, Vicki Tonkins, narrowly won this election. It's a re-election. And she's been a controversial figure during a short tenure. 
and the deep disagreements predate Trump's election loss. Last spring, 17 Republican elected officials said Tonkin should consider stepping down. And that was after she suggested on the official county GOP Facebook page that COVID-19 may be a hoax. So this is pretty unprecedented that so many people would ask her to step down. And Tonkins later said she was only trying to start a discussion. So she did not resign. And then the local executive committee stripped her of many of the powers as chair, such as communicating with the public on behalf of the county party. And yet she was narrowly re-elected this weekend, you said. So there's a rift there between the chair and elected officials. And how did that play out in this election? Well, A controversy erupted just days before the leadership election. A a tentative agenda listed a local militia group as providing security. That didn't end up happening, but many Republicans were concerned about the logistics of the meeting, safety, and Tonkins was in charge of putting all of that together. Here's Eli Bremer. He's the former chair of the El Paso County Republican Party, and he has been opposed to many of the things Tonkins has done. So obviously there's some underlying tensions here between sort of the radical fringe uh, elements and sort of the more mainstream, uh, common sense, conservative, liberty-minded Republicans. Well, how does El Paso County GOP Chair Vicki Tonkins respond to all of this? She didn't respond to a request for comment, but she does have supporters, clearly since she was just reelected. Oh. Many of them argue the moves to oust her are driven by race. And the treasurer Tonkins appointed, John Pitchford, raised his concerns on a local talk radio show in Colorado Springs over the summer when she was facing these calls to step down. They have a problem with the fact that we have a black woman as our chair of the GOP. Her detractors vehemently deny that race has anything to do with it, and they say they think she's too radical. What does that mean for the El Paso County GOP and, you know, bigger picture for the state party? You know, it's it's still incredibly divided. And the results of this local chair race, they're going to be contested because she she won just by a very small number of votes. Oh. And her challenger and, and others, they think there were irregularities. So that process still needs to play out. But um, I would say in the, in the bigger picture, such a big county being in this level of disarray, I think it'll be harder for them to play an effective role in helping Republican candidates next year. So Republicans face a big deficit in state legislative seats and statewide elections. And um, I think we'll see how it plays out in terms of the state legislature. There's a split there between Republicans who want to be the party defined by Trump and others who want to move past that. I think we'll see that play out in their messages and what we're hearing on social media, but also in terms of policies at the statehouse and bills, for instance, around topics such as election integrity and voter fraud. Ah, We uh, are talking about the El Paso County Republicans, but the statewide GOP has a big choice coming up, too, for Colorado party chair. Where where does that stand? That's right. Congressman Ken Buck is not seeking re-election. There's four candidates right now, and the election will be on March 27th. So this is to head the state GOP party. We've got the current vice chair, Christy Burton-Brown, and then former Secretary of State Scott Gessler. 
and then consultant and communications specialist Jonathan Lockwood, and then a congressional candidate, Casper Stockham. He's run uh, several times for Congress. And they, too, represent the various factions, if you will, of the GOP right now, whether the party should follow in the footsteps of Donald Trump or make something of a new path for itself. Uh, March 27th, we'll have our eyes on that. Thanks so much, Benta Berkland. Thank you, Ryan. She's our public affairs reporter. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the inside story of a massive rescue of hundreds of horses threatened by wildfire. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Was former President Trump responsible for last month's riot at the U.S. Capitol? That's the case before the Senate in a historic impeachment trial, which you'll hear live on CPR News this week. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. That special coverage will be on our radio signals across the state, but you can get the other news, too. Listen to CPR's regular schedule on a special stream online. You can find that only at CPR.org. And thanks for listening. Evacuating horses is no easy task, let alone 200 of them. But when the East Troublesome Fire exploded last October, it's the monumental task that ranchers in Granby faced. And the two-and-a-half-hour slog was just the beginning. David Craig is general manager of the Sea Lazy U Ranch. He says his team was ready for the evacuation orders, and as soon as they came, they put out the call for help to save the horses. People were calling us saying, hey, listen, I live in Wyoming. I live in Aspen. I live in Colorado Springs. I've got a trailer. Can I come and help? And the thing that was truly remarkable was, you know, this was not all that long before the election. It was the end of October. There was a lot of political divisiveness in our country. And there came a point when there was easily 25 vehicles with trucks and trailers lined up down a half mile stretch. And there was vehicles with Trump flags and Biden stickers. And it all of a sudden became really apparent what's important in life. And people came together when our need was the greatest. Craig says more than 50 Good Samaritans helped that day. One of them, Henry Halle of Denver, created an audio account of this amazing experience. And he's going to share it with us. Hi, Henry. Henry, you there? Hey, Ryan, how's it going? Oh, it's going. Yeah, yeah. Do you have me? Hello? We have you. It's like the beginning of every Zoom. All right. <laughs> what surprised you most <laughs> in this rescue effort? You know, the kind of like David said, the the people of that came together and and the the decorum that everyone had in this moment of chaos. There was you know, we could see the fire line from the horse pasture and everyone was very calm and was able to deal with the situation at hand really well. And uh, it was a kind of a testament to when things go, don't really go your way. How do you respond? And um, I love people, that. people responded. I love that know, word decorum. Very way. I love that word decorum and the kind of calm that can set in during a really stressful moment. You, you work for a production company that documents equestrian events running Iron Creative. Uh, why did you and your group answer this call for help? Our CFO, Ford McCarty, who's a longtime equestrian and a cowboy from Wyoming, got a got the call. And, uh, you know, we, we believe that when... You have a situation where people need help and you have the ability to help. 
that you do everything you can in your power to go and, and help in any way possible. And uh, we had the ability to go out there with four trucks and trailers and uh, try and help any way we could. Uh, tell us just briefly about Ford McCarty, uh, who asked you to join the rescue. So we're going to hear from him throughout the excerpt of this podcast. What should we know about him just briefly? So yeah, uh, he's a tall, stoic cowboy from Wyoming. <sighs> he's got the cowboy attitude and spirit, you know, where there's work to be done, you just get it done and you can rest after. Um, but he's got a heart of gold and he also has a master's in finance. And uh, we're really lucky to have him as our CFO. Okay, Henry, stick around. Let's listen now to what you and Ford went through to save those horses at the Sea Lazy U Ranch in Granby last October. By four o'clock, we were ready to head out and we had three Valiente rigs, two 15 horse trailers with actual like semi freight liners and then a big Dodge Dually 3500 pulling a 10 horse. And then I grabbed my personal truck and was pulling a six horse trailer as well. For my part, I was raised by a horse-loving mom who made sure that we grew up around horses. Mostly, that consisted of my siblings and I helping pick up their poop. Thanks, Mom. This afternoon, though, I was keen for an adventure and ready to do whatever I could to help in the rescue. So I grabbed my camera bag, hopped in Ford's truck, and we took off. It's about an hour and a half from Denver to just outside of Granby, where these horses are located. We'll be up there at 5.30. That's about golden hour. It's going to be a bit chaotic. And, uh, you know, the camera loves chaos. And it wasn't long before the first bad omen of the trip showed its face. I pretty much immediately noticed that my truck's not towing that well, but just kind of decide to push on. Truck throws a check engine light. And I just pull off the interstate and leave my truck in that trailer by the side of the road. I felt no ill will or anything like that. I was just glad that if my truck was going to break down, it was breaking down before I'd loaded the horse trailer up with six horses. So I was like, well, you know, we're still pretty close to home. I'll pick it up on the way back. Such is life. So we hop in with Gustavo. Gustavo is one of the uh, barn hands that works with the horses at the J5 Equestrian Compound. Things have been a little frantic in our communication with the ranch. So we've been sent a pin to the exact, what was supposed to be the exact location of the horses, which wasn't at the actual ranch because they'd already been moved from the fire once. For the next hour, we rolled on without any incident. And when we crested Bertha Pass, we began to see the first signs of the rescue operation that was already underway. We'd been passing horse trailers, heading away from the fire all day, and it was like one of those real moments where you share eye contact on the road, you give the wave. They were like, yep, I know you're going to help, like good on you. Just kind of this really, really neat shared experience. Once we got through Frazier and we're in the valley headed towards Granby, we see it massive, menacing gray-black cloud spawning out of the mountains in front of us. Gradually, the smell of campfire fills the car. Light becomes soft as the silty smog acts like a giant softbox. It was like driving into a war zone, or what I imagine driving into a war zone would feel like. It's just such a stark reminder that we as a humanity. We're in control of so many things in our environment, but we're not 100% in control. 
you know, the destructive force of a fire like that, it just will make you feel small. It was really humbling to see this uh, result of Mother Nature, uh, you know, almost at war with itself. 20 minutes later, we roll into Granby. The pin tells us to go on this back road, and before we know it, we are like driving through a thick cloud of smoke. We see deer running across the road, and we get to where the pin location is, and there's nobody here. Ended up driving around for like 45 minutes longer looking for the location. The sun is going down, and we backtrack a little bit out of the thick smoke, which was relieving. Before getting the ranch manager on the phone and getting some better instructions, found the correct spot. It was actually very organized. They had a policeman kind of blocking traffic when horse trailers needed to pull in and counting horse trailers in. So we arrive at the interim location where the Sea Lazy U horses are, and we're waiting in line because they can only fit so many trailers back into the pasture at one time. Which was a pretty surreal experience because it was just so cool to see how many people had kind of turned out to help. We witnessed a group of people from different backgrounds who held different beliefs come together to help people they had never met. Finally, it's our turn to go load the horses, and we pull in. And it is just sheer chaos. There's like six or seven horse trailers being loaded. Horses are rearing. People kind of got a little bit of that kind of glazed look on their eyes. You know they've been at this all day under so much stress. And I'm a a real horse person. I grew up on a ranch in northern Wyoming. cowboyed and played polo my whole life and honestly nothing makes me more nervous than seeing a bunch of people around unfamiliar horses so pulling in I was I was definitely like oh man there's a little bit of a recipe for a disaster going on right here but you know that's kind of the reality of a situation like that it's not going to be optimal it's not going to be relaxed just to the north of us we can see the fire on the ridgeline above Granby. It's winking at us from the thick smoke that's pouring over the ridge. It was super ominous and like very apparent if the winds shifted uh, from north to south, like we would be in serious trouble. We open up our trailers and basically just start loading horses in. And as horse people will know, It's hard sometimes to get a horse to load into a small metal box. In a situation like this where you had 185 horses and you're just trying to get horse trailers loaded as quickly as you can, I think it's pretty natural for the tough horses to make it to the back end of the the group because what do you do when you're trying to load a horse onto a trailer and then it it boxes, you're struggling, you go to the end of the line. Well, if you're doing that all day, What you end up with is your toughest horses are at the back of the line. And as it turns out, we pulled in with our three horse trailers and had room for exactly 40 horses. And there was exactly 40 horses left. So we got the the very last batch of horses and there were a number of very, very difficult horses. There's dust everywhere. 
We had horses rearing, horses turning really fast, people all over the place. I'm very proud of the horses that they didn't kick anybody because I can only imagine how much terror they were feeling. You know, these are big, couple thousand pound animals. You can't pull them on, you can't plead with them, you can't coerce them, you can't bribe them with food. And it's actually interesting, if a horse doesn't load, you just spray paint your phone number on it and turn it loose and hope that it can outrun the flames. But I jumped in there and, and helped a few times. I had to back some horses onto the trailer so they couldn't see what they were doing, which sometimes you can get a horse to back up when it won't go forward. Finally, when the last horse got on the trailer, there was like a ragged cheer, but everyone was so tired that, you know, there wasn't a lot left to give to the happiness and relief of having these horses on the trailer. So we're riding high, we're feeling good. The horses are loaded, they all settle down. We have dividers between all the horses in our horse trailers. We had the trailers bedded with, with shavings, so we felt like the horses were in a good, safe position. It's 8.30, it's taken us longer to get up there and get loaded than we anticipated, but we're like, okay, you know, an hour to, to the drop-off spot, get them unloaded quick, you know. It'll be a little bit late before we get home, but, but really no big deal. The horses are heading to Solid Rock Ranch which is in the foothills between Evergreen and Conifer. We gassed up, grabbed a couple snacks, and got on the road. Drive back up over the pass, that's all good. The trucks are pulling well, no problems there. But then we start descending down. And plunged right into fog. You could feel the tension in the car just ratchet up immediately. Bertha Pass is a super windy, very steep mountain pass. And Gustavo, now has 15 other souls on board. Luckily, the fog cleared as the convoy merged on I-70 in the valley floor. Ford and I exchanged a fist bump, and I boldly declared us to be on the home stretch. The first sign of trouble was when our GPS uh, estimated time of arrival suddenly jumped from 30 minutes to one and a half hours. We were almost at the top of Floyd Hill at this point, Floyd Hill is the unofficial point where the big mountains end and the foothills really begin. As we crested the hill, we were greeted by flashing lights of police cruisers blocking the road. At the top of the exit, we made a left across a bridge over I-70 to get on the frontage road, and as we got about a quarter of the way onto the bridge, the truck just went sideways. The bridge was completely encased in ice. Gustavo clicked the Dodge into four-wheel drive, and, you know, luckily we had four-wheel drive, and uh, we made our way onto the frontage road. The two semi-trailers that do not have four-wheel drive were behind us, and they saw us spin out, so luckily they were taking it very slow. Pretty soon we're going about 15 miles per hour, and the roads are just getting slicker by the second. I-70s on the right, and we look over and see just cars and trucks and Winnebago's scattered across the highway. I've never driven a truck and trailer on icy roads before. Six months previously, I was part in a spin-out that happened on I-25 in Wyoming, where our truck and snowmobile trailer spun several times down the highway, and I knew that in this scenario, if we did that, it would be a very messy and traumatic outcome for us and the horses. But we're just making the best of it. We're going slow. We've got a 
reroute a few times and uh, there's definitely a few moments where you're slipping and sliding, but uh, there's nothing to do but head on. Fast forward an hour and a half, we eventually make it to the drop-off point for these horses. We are unable to actually drive fully to the pastures, and so we park in like this staging area. Now, I've been around horses uh, on and off my whole life. However, most of my experience has been leading very docile mini ponies to and from our small barn to the pasture. Uh, And this past experience did not really help me or prepare me in the slightest to receive this big, big mule. He is extremely pleased to be off the trailer, but also extremely disgruntled to find he has no clue where he is. And I've got his lead rope, and he's doing circles around me. I'm doing my best to hang on to him. A voice comes like, all right, there's another one coming out. And... Out comes another horse that's not being led by anybody. Snag his lead rope. Then they're both now doing circles around me. And I'm like, I have no idea where the pastures are. Completely overwhelmed. It's sleeting. It's cold. The wind's blowing. And these horses can sense that I am not confident and comfortable. And they are themselves are becoming more and more restless. And just when it looks like one of them's going to break away, out of nowhere comes Ford who's an excellent horseman and is very confident and comfortable around horses. And he snags the lead rope of the mule and adds it to the string of four horses he's already carrying and makes his way immediately up the hill to where the pasture is. And I follow along with my my one horse, (laughs) who thankfully calmed down once we started walking. It was kind of misting down, sleeting, and I just remember looking at the bunches of grass and they're just 100% covered in ice and, you know, kind of slipping and sliding all over on the walk up. I'm starting to think to myself, we're only 30 miles from home and only like 15 miles to the edge of the mountains, but I'm not feeling so good about getting the trucks and trailers out of there. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, I think we ought to leave the two big freight liners and unhook the trailer from the dually and just cut our losses and get out of the mountains and come back tomorrow. I go to our team and the barn manager and I'm like, you know, I really think we ought to leave the freight liners. No one listened. (laughs) Nobody listened. The consensus we got from the rest of the team was, oh, you know, it'll be all right. We'll just go really slow. We don't have far to go. We'll make it out of the mountains. It didn't really feel like it was my call to make. So uh, just kind of agreed. All right, like, let's go for it. It's, It's been an adventure so far. I'm sure we'll make it. It's midnight when we we actually hit the road. So that's Ford McCarty of Denver and our guest, Henry Halle. They and more than 50 others from around the state helped the Sea Lazy U Ranch in Granby evacuate its horses last fall as the East Troublesome Fire raged dangerously close. Henry, I had to remind myself to breathe during that story. I think one thing you picked up on is the fear of spooking the horses. I mean, I grew up around horses, and that was always on my mind. What are my movements? Are they such that I could intimidate the horse? And you're in an environment where everything could intimidate the horse. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, um, it was amazing really to see how these horses responded to the situation, especially when we were down to like the last five that really did not want to get on the trailer, but all their friends were on the trailer and, and you could see the panic in their eyes. Um, and, and yeah, they're so powerful that at any moment, you know, if, if like a rustling bag comes out of nowhere, or a loud voice, um, startles them, you know, just reflexively, they can throw a leg out and do some serious damage. And, uh, it was amazing to see all the cowgirls from the sea lazy U ranch and the cowboys who were handling these horses and putting their bodies on the line, knowing that, that they could be injured by spooking these horses, but they knew that there was a greater goal and, um, it was amazing watching them. I do want to note that all the rescued horses are doing okay. You mentioned at the start of your story that you grabbed your camera bag, but to what extent were you able to document the evacuation in real time, given all that was on your plate? Um, not effectively. It, I was hoping to get there at like when the sun was going down and, and make some really dynamic imagery and help draw attention to it in that way. And uh, when we got there, it was after dark and um, we were actually in the line of cars kind of waiting to get into the pasture. So when we fully got to the horses, it was fully dark. I did make a few images um, of some horses trying to trying to get loaded and, and a little bit of the scene, but um, that, that was just about 10, 10, 10 images. So th- this was a bit of a reconstruction in terms of the audio. There's a whole second half to this story. Uh, where we left off, it's around midnight. You're headed home in that nasty weather. In just a few seconds, give us a sense where the story goes from there. We'll consider it uh, an ability, wetting people's appetite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, yeah, all the horses were successfully dropped off, and uh, and then it turned into a bit of a self rescue adventure. Um, we, I've never seen conditions this icy before, mm. and um, we crashed one car or one truck and, uh, and then ended up leaving everything except, uh, the Dodge and, uh, got home at four in the morning, um, after some other misadventures. Henry Halle there. He's with the Denver-based production company Running Iron Creative. He created an audio account of his experiences helping evacuate horses from the Sea Lazy U Ranch in Granby. I mentioned the horses are doing okay. The ranch itself did have some structures burn. They're working to reopen this spring. Find a link to Henry's podcast later today at CPR.org for that exciting second half. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Decades after her death, Selena remains the queen of Tejano music. She's the subject of a new Netflix series and public radio podcast. And as we told you recently, she performed several times in Colorado, including at the state fairgrounds in Pueblo. Today, another memory of that 1994 show from a former stagehand, Mark Gregory, who will never forget Selena and her band. They would always have a a local crew of people that would help set up equipment, lighting, speakers. And so I was on that local crew. So before she came, I didn't really know much about her. I heard she was kind of an up-and-coming, you know, artist.
During the day when we're setting up, I, I remember she would come out, like a lot of artists would, to see how things were going or maybe do mic checks. And I noticed right away just how a nice person she was. You know, she would talk to us, you know, a little chit chat, say hello, thanks for everything we're doing, things like that. So there's usually 20 or 25 people during those crews that help set equipment up. And during the show, they'd keep maybe three or four of us on stage to help with things that might be needed um, during the performance. And so I got to watch her from stage, kind of on the side stage, actually, and was blown away at her talent. I was like, wow, who is this? And I remember afterwards, I went home and told my wife, I said, and this Selena girl, you're going to hear about her because not only was the Tejano music amazing that she performed, but she did a lot of contemporary kind of songs that were popular at that time. Not only that was, you know, I'm probably 28, 29 years old at the time, and I was just blown away about how beautiful she was as well as talented. You're always on my mind. It was maybe six months to a year later, I'm guessing, that, that she died. And at that time, I had bought a little rental house that I was um, doing a bunch of work on. So I remember I would have the radio on. And one night when I was doing that, came on the radio that, that she was killed. I heard that. It was just like, man, I was sad. I just sat down on the floor for a few minutes and was just really saddened by that. I'm definitely a Selena fan, and not just me, but my whole family. You know, my my wife, I've got 31-year-old daughter and 28-year-old son, they're Selena fans. Mark Gregory of Pueblo, remembering the late Tejano superstar, Selena. And thanks to our own team of radio superstars. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Oh, man.